I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. And I'd like to welcome you today to a strategic farming field notes session, and we're going to cover today when pests bite back. So um, again, these sessions are brought to you by UM Extension and generous support from the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Growers Research and Promotion Council. Uh, I'm Liz Stahl, I'm an extension educator. I work out of the Worthington Regional Office uh, focusing on crops and moderating with me today. We have Claire Lacan. She is an extension educator in Rice and Steel Counties. And today, just a little bit of a different spin on things. We're going to have a couple polls today, too. So those of you that are participating live can answer those questions. And those that of you that are listening on the podcast will kind of uh, at, at least be able to explain what, what people here joining us live today uh, had their thoughts on. But Anyway, so with that, I just wanted to turn it over to our first topic today. Again, when on our pest bite back, we're going to look at the, on the weed front. And so we have Dr. Tom Peters. He's our extension weed scientist and sugar beet specialist. He works with NDSU and the University of Minnesota. But first of all, if you want to put up that first poll, and I'll see if our readers are, well, people can see that. Okay, so the first question is, we have two questions of this poll. Uh, first one is, do you think you have weed resistance to any of the following on land you farm or the land that you work with? And here you can select all that apply. So we've got like glyphosate, uh, PPO inhibitors, so like Flexstar Cobra, ALS inhibitors, so like Pursuit First Rate, HPPD inhibitors like Callisto and Lattice, uh, glufosinate, for example, Liberty, um, or Atrazine, or other. Uh, and the last option is no, I don't think so. And then there's a second question under this too. So just scroll down on your screen. Uh, this one's asking, what is the most common glyphosate resistant weed in Minnesota? And we've got kosher, water hemp, common ragweed, or um, glyphosate resistant volunteer corn. So we'll give you um, just a couple more seconds to do this and then we'll close that out. See, we've got about 66. Okay, two more seconds. Make your choices here. And you want to close that out, Diane? We can share the results here. Okay. All right. And Tom, you can take a look at this. I will let you review the answers here, how that fits in uh, with what you want to talk about today. But well, I'll I'll help you out here a little bit. Yeah, we see glyphosate's the number one for resistance to the following at 68% of the people. Um, and then 27% say ALS, 27% say no, I don't think so. But we have some people, 18% uh, with PPO inhibitors, 9% with glufosinate, and 5% with atrazine. So, and the most common weed, uh, glyphosate resistant weed in Minnesota was water hemp. Uh, people are reporting was 77% and volunteered corn following at 27%. So, um, Tom, I'll turn it over to you. I know you have some things to share. Your starters with Liberty. Um, that you want yeah, to I, today too. Liz, I'd like to start with the first question. So, 
I'll make um, comments regarding this when I go through my pictures for those that are listening, um, um, participating this morning. I, I would like to make a comment about liberty, though. So two people mentioned liberty and possible liberty resistance. I would encourage both of you to reach out to your regional educator and first tell us where you where you live. Um, and second, if possible, um, I would like to get a hold of a, a sample, uh, a seed sample possibly to test that. Um, I'm not aware of any liberty resistance in Minnesota, but that doesn't mean anything. So your observations are very important. And, and um, if you're seeing some things that are unusual, uh, we certainly need to to hear about them and 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 see that. So I'm going to put up um, a, a a a brief um, PowerPoint presentation, and I'm going to talk a little bit about water hemp resistance. So um, if if I query my colleagues in different parts of the country and ask them what herbicide families have you observed resistance in we get usually six families so hey, Tom, can you put that in presenter mode um we're just kind of seeing a small picture of that okay um i thought i did um, yeah sometimes it's kind of funky uh let's see that's not in presenter mode. Just a second, um, I'll try it again. It's bigger now though. <laughs> oh, okay. So let yeah. me see. Did that help at all? That helps. Wait, oh, wait, wait a second. Okay. I know what I'm I, I know what I forgot to do. Is that better? There you go. Yep, that looks good. So six families, and I mentioned that, that some of these are in Minnesota, some of these are not in Minnesota. Um, but, but the scary thing that weed scientists concern themselves with is sometimes we'll have the same plant with multiple herbicide resistance. So in Minnesota, I think it's very possible that our water hemp may have resistance to ALS inhibitors, group two, glyphosate, um, group nine, and the PPO inhibitors, all in the same plant. So that's, that's pretty scary. Now, what I don't see a lot of is liberty resistance. And as I started with, I'm not aware of any liberty resistance um, in Minnesota and Eastern North Dakota. But I wanna, I wanna challenge everybody. I think liberty has to be our special. It's the herbicide that we very carefully use in crop production to ensure that we don't have widespread resistance. So what that means is, is save it for one crop in the rotation, the one crop that you need or value liberty the most in. And then second, use liberty in a program. 
Use it in conjunction with soil residual herbicides. Um, use a layering technique. And then save Liberty for weeds that are less than four inches tall um, if you're using it post-emergence. I call that application in June, uh, maybe early July, Liberty the Closer because it's um, right at the end of the use label. Now, I, I do a lot of driving during the summer. My, my territory is sugar beet growers in Minnesota and North Dakota. And that's quite a few miles between these guys. So I get a chance to drive by a lot of fields. So I was obser observing a soybean field and in uh, mid-July, towards the end of July, water hemp started to poke out of this field. And Liz, if we get a chance, we can talk about why that might be occurring. And I, I just, you know, I just made a note. Boy, there's, uh, there's water hemp in that field. Well, guess what? Two weeks, uh, two weeks later, in the last two weeks, those water hemp are brown. And, or at least the leaves are brown. So what I think is happening here is the producer went out and sprayed the field, probably because they were worried about seed set. So water hemp is a prolific producer of seed. And I'm guessing the producers said, I don't want any of that going to seed. But two things. All we're doing here is burning off the leaves. We're not going to kill this plant. It's too big. Um, the plant in the picture is at least two feet tall. So we're going to see regrowth here. But this is exactly the recipe that weeds take for developing resistance. They take advantage of maybe an awkward application. And we identify maybe a very rare plant or population of plants. And those are the ones that proliferate, they're the ones that are able to survive, and that's how resistance develops. So, so Liz, I would encourage our, our producers that are on the phone or listening to this podcast later to resist the urge to use liberty when you're compromising the value of the chemistry. And for hand weeding, or, or excuse me, for late escapes, I would consider other ideas for for eliminating those escapes such as hand weeding i know it's hard work uh, i know it's still hot out but that's the kind of activity we have to do to preserve our chemistry that's a really good yes. point tom and you know on your hand weeding what do you think i mean because we get questions sometimes do we need to remove the weeds out of the field or you know is it okay to just pull them and leave them lay but you know at what point do you think we're getting viable seed? And I mean, do we need to worry about hauling them out of the field? Very That's important, <laughs> very important question. So, so here's the deal with water hemp. Water hemp seed is viable in 14 days, two weeks after it flowers. So I don't think we know for sure when it flowered, but if we're going out there now, this week, the, the, the week of the 8th of August, I would encourage everybody to carry them out of the field. Bring a bag, carry them out of the field, throw them in a burn barrel or something, but don't just drop them. 
because there's going to be a fair amount of viable seed there already. So yeah, you probably you probably help yourself, but you've gone through all the work to pull them, carry them out of the field. Now, um, if you're pulling out common ragweed or lamb's quarters, those those plants make viable seed much later in the season. So I wouldn't have any problem at all just pulling the common ragweed and letting it go. Good reason why we have a lot of water hemp, right? I <laughs> that's think that's part, so of well as part of it. Um, well, and, you know, we talked a, a bit about water hemp, but I don't know if you're ready to switch gears a little bit, but I, I'm just intrigued by this question, too. We asked, what's the most common glyphosate-resistant weed in Minnesota? 77% of people said water hemp, but volunteer corn came in second at 27%. What's your take on this, Tom? Well, first of all, there's a tremendous amount of volunteer corn out there. And, and it makes sense because I, I think uh, much of the, the seed corn, much of the corn we plant has the glyphosate trait in there. So um, I think a lot of our programs combine glyphosate with other things and we're not getting it with glyphosate. But, but here's the thing I think, Liz, um, we're using the, the group one herbicides, but in many cases, they're in combination with the group four herbicides, the oxen herbicides. And I don't care if you're using a dicamba program in soybeans or 2,4-D choline, you're gonna get antagonism. Mixing together uh, mixing together um, SelectMax, for example, and one of those oxen herbicides is not the most effective way to get volunteers. So the guys that are going through the work and 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 throw and putting a herbicide out there are probably not realizing the the results that they're expecting. Wow, good good points and. Uh... You know, too, again, when we're looking at this point as we're seeing these weeds poking through the fields, really what, what can we do? I mean, what, what would you recommend? What's, what's kind of the process at this point? We've talked about hand weeding. I mean, is there anything to do or should we just pretty much take notes and plan for next year? <laughs> so, so, so three things, Liz. So first of all, we're done spraying. Um, I know we like to spray things, um, it's fun to move our sprayers through fields, but spraying is not the solution anymore. So let's put the sprayer away, especially for our row crops. Um, number two, I mentioned hand weeding and I'll say it again, go out there and especially in those heavy pockets in the field, go out and get those. Um, number three, there's a few people that are using the weed zapper. We just saw some published information from Missouri where they're telling us that the weed zapper not only fries the plant, but it is also reducing the viability of the seed that's in the process of being made by the plant. And, and then you mentioned a good one, and I'm not going to let that one go away. Um, getting good maps, especially at harvest, as to where the most severe weed infestations are in fields makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's one thing that we've asked about it, like our private pesticide applicator recertification workshops in the in the past. And it's it's kind of surprising how few people actually report using weed maps. But I mean, I think that's a 
could be very useful, don't you think, just to help target what products you should be using in areas, maybe if you need to fine tune rates, for example, or where you're going to really try to hit it hard. Um, I, it just seems like a kind of underutilized tool. I always like to say that we know exactly where the weeds are until we harvest. And then we do tillage and our, you know, we have this big empty um, field again, and we're not exactly sure where those weed areas were. Um, our software products now are so good at, at giving us um, location specific information. Take advantage of that and draw some maps. And those, those are records just as valuable as the yield maps, in my opinion. Well, and, and one last question before we switch over on the insect end, but so if I'm a, if I'm a farmer, you know, and we're getting close to harvest and I see this kind of water hemp forest coming up, should I just run my combine right through there or come <laughs> back later? And I think we know the answer to this, but. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I, I'd prefer that. First of all, I'd say wait as long as you can with that field. Do the, the, the fields that have less pressure first. And then if you can, go around those areas with, with heavy weeds. Um, in many cases, you're compromising yield there anyway, especially in the most severe areas. But our combines do a tremendous job of spreading that seed out. And I would, I would prefer that we don't allow that to happen. Or if we do do that, let's do it at the end and make sure we're cleaning our equipment when we're done. Excellent points. Thank you, Tom. Um, Claire, I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah, and I wonder if we do want to address the question in the Q&A quickly, just because I yes. think other people may be curious too. Tom, um, can people submit water hemp or rayweed samples that they believe have PPO and glyphosate resistance? And if so, can you kind of tell them how to do that? Yes, you can. So what I would encourage you to do is to reach out to your regional educator or county agent, and we'll be sure either our educators or our agents um, are in contact with myself or Dr. Deblin Seringi, my colleague at the University of Minnesota. So Deblin especially is taking a lead at trying to map out where weed infestations are, especially resistant weeds. And he'd love to, Devlin and his team would love to get those samples. Thank you. Yeah, so now we will transition over to our insect topics. So we're going to hear from Bruce Potter, our integrated pest management specialist at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center in Lamberton. Thanks for joining us, Bruce. And um, Diane, if we could launch our poll, we'll start off with our insect poll here. So uh, we're asking about soybean aphid. So how do you decide when to spray for soybean aphids? And you can select all that apply. And our options are, you use the economic threshold. Um, you believe 250 aphids per plant uh, threshold is too high. You spray when custom applicators are in the area. You don't scout, you spray when your neighbors do. You spray aphids as a tank mix within herbicide or fungicide. You spray once the soybeans reach a particular growth stage or around a particular calendar date. Or you spray when your agronomist or crop consultant tells you to. 
there's two, two more options. Yep. Oh, the sorry. next one. Yep, that <laughs> window. So make sure to scroll, everybody. Um, <laughs> and um, you do not spray an insecticide for soybean aphid control at all, or you don't plant soybean slash you don't farm. I'll just give a couple more seconds here. All right, Diane, I think you can, yep, thank you, share the results. So we see that the largest number here, 52% uh, of our participants today use the economic threshold. And then kind of our second largest number, we see 14% believe that the threshold of 250 aphids per plant is too high, so they spray earlier. So Bruce, if there's anything else you want to point out in the results or comment on that? No, I think uh, the, the, th the two that I think are probably uh, I'd like to talk about a little bit is spraying uh, uh, aphids a tank mix with an herbicide or a fungicide. Um, and then uh, people that think that 250 aphid per plant threshold is too high. Um, you know, it, crop prices are high this year and people haven't had to spray many aphids for the past couple of years. Populations are a little bit up this year. Um, and, and, you know, I suppose people have been waiting for a couple of years wanting to kill aphids and now is their chance. Um, and I think this high crop price fly, uh, falls into things too in that, um, you know, they're worried they're gonna lose yield. Uh, these aphids have no idea what how much you're going to get for a bushel of soybeans. Um, it's not that they eat more when prices are high and they eat less when the prices are low. Uh, that, that 250 aphid per plant threshold is pretty darn conservative, has been for a long time. Um, it gives you some, uh, some opportunity to uh, lag, lead time in there to get uh, things, uh, those populations controlled. So, <clears throat> I know there's a lot of fear and, and angst about not getting things sprayed in time, but um, you know I don't I don't think it's the threshold's not is not too too high. Um, it's maybe people's perception of how much time they have to get things done, those sorts of things. I've heard people this year worried about uh, without Lors van uh, wanting to use a ground rig and they want to spray where that canopy's open. Um, you guys want to mix it with a fungicide. And, and save a, a trip. Uh, the problem with that is um, timing. And, you know, most fungicides were sprayed a week, two weeks ago. Uh, right now, we're right in the middle of, a, of aphids moving uh, between fields. Uh, we're getting uh, aphids uh, as these veg plants quit growing vegetatively. We got a lot of those aphids that were up on the top of the plant, those producing winged nymphs, those uh, or winged, uh, winged aphids. Those aphids are dispersing within the field and throughout fields. And, you know, that insecticide's gone by now, or a lot of it's gone. So your timing, timing issue might be a little bit of a, a problem if you're doing a tank, tank mix, just like spraying corn rootworm beetles uh, with corn fungicides. Um, so the other thing that happens if you're spraying an insecticide and a fungicide uh, without regard for how many insects you've got out there is you are knocking out uh, both 
possibly some beneficial fungi and some uh, insect predators. And as, as aphids move into the field, flaring aphids or flaring spider mites if, if uh, you've got some uh, hot, dry weather. So don't do it. Well, that kind of leads into a question from a participant here is, um, I've been waiting on my soybean fungicide application as long as I felt I could with the goal, if needed, I would tank mix insecticide with that application. Is there a problem with that? Um, well, I mean, if, if, if you're waiting and, and waiting till you have aphids, there's not a problem. Um, and if you're, but if you're going to throw the, if you don't have aphids, uh, uh, there's, I, I think you could save a little money and, and some potential risk by keeping the insecticide out of it. So uh, you've got some time on the fungicide, uh, especially if you're in one of these drier areas, there's not much, uh, there hasn't been much uh, uh, fungal leaf disease out there. So there's no reason to be real proactive. Um, if you've got a white white mold in the field, you're trying to manage those sorts of things, uh, then you'd want to have that fungicide on a lot earlier. Thanks. Yeah, and and back to the soybean aphid application, um, or with the threshold of 250 aphids per plant on 80% of the plants, on a typical year that gives you about a, a week to react, sure. uh, right, Bruce? And so with high prices this year, maybe that window's a little bit shorter? Um, no, it, not, it, the, 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 the timing's still about the same um, because it's not that that 250 aphids per plant causes yield loss uh, right. immediately. The, those aphids have, have to feed on the plant for a while. It's that concept of aphid days or how many aphids you have for how long. So there's, there's, there's a... Uh, there's a lag in there and we don't have real good data on this, but the further along uh, uh, those plants get into, uh, as far as the, uh, the further along those plants are in development, probably the more aphid feeding they can tolerate. So bigger, uh, more mature plants can probably take a little more uh, aphid uh, uh, feeding than, than a small uh, early reproductive stage plant. That's One thing good. I want to mention on these aphids and 250, some guys uh, may think they've gotten burned by waiting till 250. And the problem might not be the threshold, it might be scout scouting. I mentioned a lot of aphids have left the field right now, uh, but they've left some aphids below in the lower canopy. And over the last week, uh, some of those small white aphids they leave behind have been reproducing real well. Uh, Monday, I was looking at stuff we'd scouted last week. And some of these uh, adult uh, aphids in the lower canopy had up to 12, 12 nymphs to them. So those populations can, can really explode lower in the canopy. Those aphids are smaller down there um, and they're harder to spot. So make sure if you're scouting, uh, you're not just looking at the top of the plant anymore. You've got to look, at, look further down. Yeah, good suggestion. We have a question about spider mites. How are the populations so far this year? Uh, we're just starting to see some uh, some injury levels in the uh, uh, the past week in these dr more droughty areas or past couple of weeks in the droughty areas. Pretty isolated, even in some of the drought stressed areas. Uh, spider mites have been pretty low, um, and now we've had some rain and some dews, uh, some cooler weather. 
that should tamp the spider mites down. Uh, but there's plenty of time if, if things heat up and, and we run short of moisture again for those populations to, to pop back up. But the rain really uh, and the weather is probably helping us out right now. Kind of going back to aphids, because I just saw this question pop up, but could you make some generalizations about the aphid populations like kind of across the state overall this year? Uh, sure. Um, they're, um, aphids are like a lot of insect problems or insects we have this year, whether it was armyworms, cutworms, um, grasshoppers, um, spider mites. Um, they're there, but they're spotty. They're not real uniform. And so uh, initially it was a lot of these small fields, a lot surrounded by trees. Uh, some of those got treated. Uh, Minnesota River Valley and, and uh, you know, and, and, and into the south central part of the state, we've got some higher populations. Uh, but again, it's still mostly smaller fields. At Lamberton here, uh, we're pretty close to threshold. Uh, but then you go a, little, a few fields away, some of the larger fields, and, and they're either pretty rare or at, at still at low populations. So um, they're there. Um, I've heard of uh, issues uh, up into West Central Minnesota as well, but it seems like they're still, it's not like uh, the early days of aphids where we'd have these big waves of aphid infestations moving through the state. They're still, they're still pretty scattered. Do you have any information, Bruce, on um, if any of these populations kind of that you're seeing across the state are looking like they might have some resistance to pyrethroids? And, you know, that's been kind of on our minds the last couple of years is seeing some resistant populations. So um, I'm, I'm assuming they are. They have they haven't. It hasn't gotten any less. We still uh, still pick them up in our research plots or or. When people uh, try a pyrethroid, there, there's still some fields that have issues. It's not every field by any means, but it's a large enough percentage of them that uh, spraying a straight pyrethroid is pretty risky. Um, we'll see what happens this year, but my guess is it's 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 sticked, uh, it's fixed in the population. What do you recommend for people if they suspect that they might have a resistant population or a past of that? Um, and now that chlorpyrifos is out of the picture currently, what what do you think people should do for soybeans? Well, we've got we've got some alternatives. It's a lot better situation than with spider mites. We've got some alternatives. Uh, we've got. Uh, uh, some group four insecticides, Savanto and Transform. Uh, we've got Safina. Those three are all pretty specific to sucking insects. They do a good job on aphids. You need good coverage, just like you do the pyrethroids. Um, they're translocated to a, to a certain extent. So, so uh, but, but we've had pretty good results in, in, field, in fields and in our, in, especially in our insecticide studies. Um, so those are an option. Um, if you use a pyrethroid, you're probably going to have to mix it with a neonicotinoid, um, or you're going to have to mix it with uh, one of these other products. There's some prepackaged things like uh, Ridgeback, which has got Transform in it, and a pyrethroid, or, um, or uh, Renestra, which is uh, Safina with a, with a pyrethroid. The reason for the pyrethroid is to broaden the spectrum out. Um, 
you know, for some reason, people are all confused when they spray aphids. If the aphids are dead, they don't want to see grasshoppers or anything else out there. Um, you know, I guess I guess I'd I'd be more focused on trying to take care of the pop problem at hand. You've got a few grasshoppers, but aphids are your problem. Worry to worry about the aphids. You don't have to worry about killing a few grasshoppers out there. Pheasants need to eat too. Thanks, Bruce. I, I know we're running close on time. Is there anything you want to add quick here, Claire? Uh, we're running near the end. I know we. Um, just that we did put in the chat a link to some information on insecticide options for soybean aphids too, especially with pyrethroid resistance on the horizon. So that is in the links. And I guess I'd just say any last parting thoughts from you, Bruce? No, I think uh, scouting is important here. Uh, we're going to be looking at some defoliation, uh, foliating insects later on. Uh, corn rootworms, uh, if you're in, in, on the corn side, corn rootworms are, are uh, still the issue. Um, scout those fields and, and know what you're, what you're dealing with as far as resistance and populations for next year. All right. Well, thank you, Bruce and Tom. Thank you as well. Uh, appreciate both of you participating and everybody who joined us today. And uh, again, just a reminder, we do have a short, very short four-question survey that we'll have. Uh, again, as you leave this session, and part of that is just seeing what you'd like to talk about next week. Uh, we have just two weeks left of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Um, so uh, on the 17th, I believe we'll be looking at Palmer Amaranth as one of the topics. And then uh, the last session on the 24th, likely uh, hitting on corn silage and forage topics and other issues as well. Uh, I do want to put in a quick plug, too. We have a couple field days coming up. We got the Cover Crop Field Day. August 18th at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center by Lamberton. Uh, Check-in starts at 8.30. The program will go from 9 to 1. And then the Pest Management Field Day, that's August 31st at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center in Lamberton. That's 8.30 to 12.30, Bruce, I think I have the time right on that. Yep, um, good to see all kinds of death and destruction. <laughs> there you go. Um, so again, thanks to our sponsors today, the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. And uh, thanks, everyone, and have a great rest of the week. <laughs>